Hey, New Life Church, Bronson Duke here. Thanks for listening in. The heart of our church is that you would know Jesus, that you would walk with Jesus, and you would learn how to live like he lived. We hope that this message equips you and empowers you on your journey walking with Jesus. Okay, we're going to get started because we want to be, make sure we get everybody out and um, kind of share with you how, why we're here today and why this happened. But before I do, the educator in me into creating the awareness, you see you have this sheet here? I, if you would, grab that sheet and turn it over to the pop quiz. All right, this pen should be a pen in front of you, on your, in, in front of your seats, you, you have a pen, okay? Take this little quiz, the pen's in the back. Anybody need a, I have, I have a, some pens up front if anybody needs I think there should be plenty. All right, so I want to let you realize the epidemic that we're dealing with. Numbers don't lie, and together they tell a story. And so this, this is facts. This is not feelings. Feelings are not facts. Facts are facts. So before we get ready to start, I want you to go with me for the first five questions, okay? This is, um, we created this organization because on September 27, 2012, as I was finishing up coaching football with my son, I, at Tropical Smoothie, which you just ate a sandwich today, I was sitting there and, with my boy, and um, I got a call from my assistant at Arkansas Baptist, said, you need to get to campus right away. One of your students have been murdered. And I said, what? She said, they're waiting on you. So I tell Justice, I remember it. It's just, just brain in my head. He had a sunset smoothie. And I told him, get it, let's go. Uh, he had a Chipotle chicken sandwich. And I said, hey, you have to eat that at home. So I ran home, dropped him off at home, immediately ran down to 621 Dr. Martin King Drive. As soon as I pull up, I see the tape, I see everything. Derek Olivier, who's freshman from New Iberia, Louisiana, first time generation college student, parents had given him an opportunity, said, you have two choices, but you can't stay at home. You either go to the army, or you go to college. His folks brought him to Little Rock, dropped him off, and at 7.27 p.m., I had to notify his mother, Mother Alma Olivier, that Derek had been murdered across the street from Arkansas Baptist College, changing a tire for a young man, for, for a stranger that he didn't know. Being a Samaritan, somebody had had a flat tire. He was around a group of guys, and somebody came and emptied a nine-millimeter clip, hit Derek three times. He stumbled back across the yard and died and bled on campus. The next day, we had a memorial service, and I asked all of my um, students to stand up to see who had been impacted by gun violence. Ninety percent of our students stood up to let you know what we're dealing with in our society. Derek's mother told me, she said, you know, had he went to the army, I would expect it for him to die, but I sent my boy to you, and you bring him back to me in a box. I was going to go back in coaching after my son graduated, but God has called me into this war to save our sons. And we can't be silent about this anymore. This is an epidemic in our community. The number one cause of death for black males aged 1 to 44 is homicide. 
All right. Now, COVID-19, we get all excited. We, we get everything that we need for everything that we to, to stop that virus. But we have a homicide virus in our community. And we have to get creative in stopping it. So what David Martin has helped me do, Mitch Battles, Arkansas business publisher, they've come and say, hey, we'll help you create this movement to create awareness. Do you realize that the number one cause of death for black males age 45 is heart disease, and when you get to 64, it's cancer? So we have a program starting this spring called First and 45 with Coach Fitzhill, the game plan to tackle the epidemic of black male homicide in the United States. So if we can get our black boys at 45, they become grandparents. And look, I don't, I worry about, when, I'm a, it's amazing. Baton Rouge is like, it's like, it's like Little Rock. When I see a 504 number and my number that, that come up at night, I get worried about my boy. Why? Because if he don't make the 45, it's not. Anything else that says that would get him for gun violence. He's in good shape, heart disease. That probably ain't gonna be the gun violence. You realize today, 30 black males will be murdered today in the United States of America. Now, we talk about all of these mass shootings. It's a mass shooting, it's 30, it's just in different places. And I can tell you almost to the T where it's gonna take place. It's not gonna happen in North Dakota. You can almost know with a great deal of certainty where it's gonna take place. So I was able to meet the two ladies today, which we studied mad mothers against drunk driver, and we look at how mothers took that initiative and changed the death rate of vehicular homicide 50%. Do you realize last year we, 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 we got Pulaski County Sheriff's Office here we're working with, that we had 16 teenagers to commit homicide, not even 18 that's locked up right now. You know what our goal is? To reduce that by 50%. You know how many families that would be? So think about this question right here. How many black males have been victims of homicides between 1950 and 2019? Circle that. Number two, what is the total number of American killed in battle during World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, and Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Three, and don't worry about if you flunk it, I've, I got a remedial class, okay? You can be in Tyrone special ed. Number three, what is the number one cause of death for black boys age one to 12? Number four, following the passage of the 1964 civil rights laws, which of the following percentages represent the increase of homicide of black males during 1970 to 79 versus 1960, 1969? Number five, approximately how many black males were murdered every 24 hours in the US in, in 2020? Okay, now, and six, approximately how many black males were murdered in the US in 2020? Seven. We're gonna go over these, so just you don't have to just get in detail. In the United States, what is the average conviction rate for those who are arrested and charged with murder? Eight. Black males are less than 70% of the total United States population. What percent of US homicides are committed against black males? Nine. 
The wounding of black males during incidents of gun violence is very common in the United States. On average, how many black males are wounded annually by gunfire? And 10. In the US, what is the average minimum cost associated with each gun injury requiring hospitalization? All right, before we go and I introduce our speakers to you who are very close to me because they are part of the club, which they'll tell you about, and that we're using as a way to bring other mothers in, as Mothers Against Drunk Drivers did, as we continue to try to bring awareness over the next six months to this epidemic that's spreading through our community. So before I go to Ms. Yolanda, Mother Yolanda, I wanna say how many black males, I'm gonna do the first five, then I'm gonna go to her to tell her story, then we'll come back to the next five and we'll go to Mother Liz. So number one, how many black males have been victims of homicide between 1950 and 2019? D, 425,000. Yes. CDC, 425,000. Now, just to let you understand the crisis, number two, what is the total number of Americans killed in battle during World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, and Desert Shield Storm, which I have happened to be a part of, in which I was fighting over there for people I didn't even know. Now think about that. I'm over there with M16 in Desert Storm trying to protect somebody I don't know, and I can't keep their children protected right here in America. Something wrong with that. They, I'm deployed way across the water. And wait till you hear their story. You know how many in war? Number two, B, between 246,000. So we've had more black males killed in America than been killed in all the major conflicts. So we are at war. Uh, this is research. Where's my man Edmund? Day, Edmund? Where is he at? Is Edmund here? This is research conducted by the Dory that he conducted for us last year as director of Derek Olivier Research Institute for the Prevention of Gun Violence. This is research that he pulled together last year for us. Number three. What is the number one cause of death for black boys aged one to 12? C, homicide. Now, that, think about that in our, that's third world. D, following the passage of the 1964 civil rights laws, which of the following percentages represent the increase in homicides of black males during 1970, 1979 versus 1960 to 1969? 81% A. See, there's a lot of stuff in there. We got it. We got that's that's the matrix that's kind of polluted. I'm gonna tell you the, the key factor there in 1960, 80% of our families were led by fathers. Compared to 28% today. See, that's a church issue that our churches have to be involved. That's a moral decay issue that our churches have to be activated to fight. And five, before we go to mom, mother Yolanda, approximately how many black males were murdered every 24 hours in the U.S. in 2020? D, 23. And, it's up, and now, post-COVID, it's 30. So now, the reason why I sit here with you, these two awesome mothers, and you see on the back, they wrote this, okay? This is their, our request, mothers of black sons stand against death. This is their heart. They wrote this. 
You know, the thing of everything before I allow them to to share what the Lord has put on their heart. This this is not a this is not a um, uh, a uh, orchestrated event. This is a spiritual event that I told them to speak their hearts. But here's one thing about what they wrote that stands out to me. And number one, it said, remember our children. They call it becoming a member of the club. This is what they said. And number one, remember our children. Before becoming a part of the club, you will be clueless in how to approach someone who's lost a child. When we encounter someone else who is experiencing grief, it is common to allow our discomfort to keep us from approaching it head on. But here's the deal that I just love being around them, learning more about their sons as they share. It says, we want the world to remember our child. No matter how young or old our child was or how many years it's been, when we speak of our son's name, we relive memories, we relive them, and we relive them with us and don't shrink away. If you've never met our sons, don't be afraid to ask about him. In those moments, it brings us joy talking about our sons, if only for a moment. That's why I'm going to give Miss Yolanda an awesome opportunity to right here for the moments we hear to talk about her son, to be able to say the things that she wants to say, the moments that she wants to remember, the last moments she had with him, and how she wants to use his name to stop this violence that's taking place in our community where we're losing our sons each and every day. Ms. Yolanda, let the Lord speak to you. Um, good evening, everyone. My name is Yolanda Harrison, and my son, Devin Sprawling, was murdered November 30th, 2018, here in Little Rock. Um, once my son, closer, um, when my son graduated high school, um, well, let's talk about him as a kid. Very mild-mannered young man. He loved music. Music definitely was his, his passion. He loved music, loved arts. Um, very polite, very mild-mannered. Yes, ma'am, no ma'am. Yes, sir, no sir to everybody. Um, he grew up in church. I was the church youth leader, so they had no choice but to be at church with me. So uh, his friends would say, always joke about, oh, if we spend the night at Devin's house, you better believe we were going to church on Sunday morning because you were. Uh, so they would intentionally leave their clothes at home, but I would make them wear Devin clothes. And Devin was a lot smaller than them, so they would have on these little small clothes in church, but that was okay. So they laughed about that. But um, um, I'll, I'll go forward to the incident. When my son graduated high school, he did go to college. Um, and his second year of college, he was majoring in graphic design, and he decided that he wanted to major in music. So he came back home, he was working. And during that time is when his life was cut short. Um, the incident leading up to my son's death, the night before, the night of, I'm sorry, the night of, he had gotten off work and he said that he was a young man, wanted to buy some beats for him. So my son worked, but he also was good with music. So he could mix songs together. And I guess that's popular and young people would want to buy the music from him or buy beats. He would mix songs together on his his laptop, he had an Apple laptop. So he was able to mix music together, two songs and make a whole nother song. So some young man wanted to buy some music and he told me that when he left the house. And that was my last time seeing my son, talking to my son that night. Um, how the call that I got, I got this call and it's strange and I go into what happened to my son. So I got a call from St. Vincent Hospital and I work at a hospital, mind you, so I, I recognized it was a hospital number and I, and I answered it. And the lady said, 
asked me, asked me my name and I told her that was me. She said, do you know Deb? And I said, that's my son. She said, could you come up to the hospital? I said, where are you? Where's this? She said, St. Vincent. I said, come up there for what? What's going on? She said, could you just come up here? Just like that. And it was strange because I couldn't understand at the time, why was she talked, why was she saying it like that? Well, come to find out, and I, this was God, because two weeks prior to that, my son had gone, I had taken him to St. Vincent. Um, he asked me to take him, he had a sinus infection. He could have taken himself, but he was acting like a baby, wanted me to be there with him, so he had a sinus infection. I usually go to Baptist. I never go to St. Vincent, but for some strange reason, I went to St. Vincent this particular night. Took him, he had a sinus infection, so when they, carried my son, these young men, I'll explain what happened. They took my son's body to St. Vincent through the ER, had carried his body, lifeless body, in through the ER. They made them tell who, they made them stay, police was called, and they wanted to know what was his name, the victim's name, and they gave my son's name. They didn't know me because I didn't know who they were. So the lady heard them say it, and she said she just happened to type it in, and she saw my name pop up. I was there two weeks prior, two weeks prior in the ER. So she just assumed it was me. She wasn't sure she was taking a chance and it was me. So that was just God working to, and that's how I was notified. Because other than that, my son would have been a John Doe until I would have found him. So I'll back up the night of the incident. Supposedly, I guess this is what happened. The young man, my son was there making a beat and they said that they were celebrating my son, what beat he made and the young man said he picked up a gun off the table. One of the young men, there were six young men, including my son. He picked up a gun off the table, and he said he was excited. He was celebrating. He thought it was a fake gun, and the gun went off. And this is what he said. And, well, it was more to that story because I was under the impression that he was waving this gun in the air, and it just went off in the air, and a bullet hit my son. No, according to the coroner's report, um, the autopsy that the, my son was shot point blank in the back of his head. So when we got to, to St. Vincent, when I got there, I walked through the ER and I saw crime scene tape and I saw blood. I said, oh, something happened to someone, being oblivious. I thought maybe my son was in a wreck or something like a minor accident. So when I got in there, the police officer immediately, when, they, when I told them my name, they grabbed me and, and took me to this room with a chaplain. I work in the hospital, I work in the ER. I know that room. So I walked in, the chaplain walked in, I stood up, he said, have a seat. I said, no. I said, talk to me. I said, I work in the hospital. I know when the chaplain comes in. So I, I didn't sit. So the doctor walked in, she had blood on her and she was very distraught. The doctor that walked in was a female and she shook her head. I said, what's going on? I said, what, what's going on? I said, where's my son? She said, they still working on him. I immediately went into this mode. I work in ER, so I went into work mode. I said, I want to go in there. And she said, no, well, you cannot go in there while they're working on your son. The chaplain said, let her go. I went in there. And all I saw them operating on my son, and he had this hole in his head. I saw that. So that was my last vision of my son with this hole in his head. 
And I was just numb, because I, I, I thought it was like a, a movie. It was like a, a nightmare, because it was like, this can't be real. Uh, I'm dreaming. I thought I was, literally thought I was dreaming. I, I didn't, I was just going through the motions. I saw them coding him. I'm standing there like like I was, um, I'm at work, like I was actually with, with, a, with a patient. I stood there until he flatlined. And then I said, shock him again. This is me talking. Thank you. Thank you. You know. I said, shock him again. This is me talking like, like I'm, 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 a, I'm a, this is my patient. And I said, shock him again. And they looked at me and they said, and the doctor said, you heard her shock him again. They were, she was taking commands from me like I was just like a zombie. So she actually did, they shocked him again and he had a heartbeat. And I, I looked at the monitor, I said, well, he's gonna be okay. We, he may have some brain damage. I'm just going all these crazy thoughts in my head. Well, he may have brain damages, he'll be okay. And then he flatlined again, and they shocked him up for the final time, and that's when <clears throat> blood started coming out of his mouth. I'm sorry to be so graphic, but I'm just telling you my story. And um, he flatlined. I, I guess I blacked out. I don't remember what happened after that. I think I blacked out at that point. But moving forward, I, um, I, I, I said, no, I needed to know what happened to my son. I said, it's more to this story. And I, I didn't know, again, I didn't know the young men that were there with my son. I didn't know any of them. It was five young men, and I heard different stories. But I do know that once my son was shot, they did not call 911. I do know that much. They did not. They attempted to clean the scene. And I know the news story mentioned that uh, there were some felony drug charges. That was not true at all. Because I'm like, why would my son say he's going somewhere and there's some illegal activity going on? That was not true at all. And that offended me because I'm thinking, you, it's like you victim shamed my son. You, you, you made it look like he was some drug dealer or something. And that really offended me. And that was, no one was charged with anything like that. No one got charged with any, no one was charged with anything. The only person that was charged was the young man who shot my son. He was charged with manslaughter. So we did not have trial during COVID. Trial was put off last year, May of 2022. We were supposed to have trial. Two days before trial, mind you, he was out in 24 hours after shooting my son. So nobody spent one, no more than 24 hours in jail. So for the past three years, everyone has been living their life. I'm the only one who's in suffering. Had trial last year, well, excuse me, did not have trial. We were supposed to, May of 2022. Two days before, the prosecutors called me into the office and told me, well, we talked with the defense team and we decided to let them take a plea. I said, a plea? What, what is a plea? We have a trial in two days. Why would we do that? Well, we're gonna let them accept a misdemeanor charge. So he got a misdemeanor for killing my son. A misdemeanor. Yes, he, he, so a misdemeanor. I mean, I can go right now and probably get a couple of speeding tickets and get a misdemeanor charge, but you took a human life and you got a misdemeanor charge. I broke down in that prosecutor's office. My daughter was home. My daughter's in the military. She, she was home for the trial. And I, I was just, it's like I relived it all over again. I could not believe that, how the system failed me. Here I am. 10-year veteran, serve my country, just like you. you. You fighting for people I don't know. I'm fighting for everyone in this country. Put my life on the line, and this is what the system does to me, my justice system that's supposed to be serve justice for me, whom I've always taught my children to obey and respect the law, always taught them that. You get stopped by a cop, you follow the orders. You don't talk back, you don't run, you don't do anything stupid. You do what you're supposed to do, both my children. If they did something wrong, you 
You accept the responsibilities for your actions. This is what we taught the children. This is what we taught our kids. But then I sit here and you made me feel like my son life meant nothing. Well, and I said, why would you do this? Well, that's the decision we made. This is what I got from the prosecutor. Well, that's the decision made. It's already been made. And that's how it ended for me. Like, so not only did I go back to day one of the day of losing my son, but now I have to deal with the fact that his life meant nothing. His life meant nothing to the system. So what does that tell another young man? Oh, I can go kill who I want because guess what? I'll get the same deer hurt that guy got for her son. Oh, her son's life didn't mean anything, so I'll take a life. What kind of, what kind of uh, standards are we setting here? Like, nobody, you should be accountable for your actions. I taught my children that, so why didn't the system teach this young man to be accountable for his actions? You took a life, then you should be punished for what you did. Whether you said the gun, oh, excuse me, the gun was never found. I, I'm sorry, I didn't add that. No one, and that was no big deal. I'm like, is anyone going to get charged with that? No weapon was ever found. But the gun was supposed to have been fake. It was a real gun used on my son, but no one ever found the weapon. And I guess it didn't matter because my son's life didn't matter. Thank you. So, as you can see, her son. It could be my son, your son. It's going to be 30 sons like that today. 30. So I want you to let that sink in. You know why? Because silence is violence. We don't say nothing. Okay? So it, it's an epidemic that continues to grow. This is why we have to tell the story to create awareness. My parents, my dad died of cancer. The reason he died, he had cancer, didn't even know it. When he found out, it was too late. That's why we have to continue to, to bring this to the surface. Number six, approximately how many black males were murdered in the U.S. in 2020? D, 8,400. In the United States, what's the average conviction rate of those arrested and charged with murder? C, 66%, which means that on any given time, we have 34% perpetrators of homicide still out. Eight, black males are less than 7% of the total United States population. What percent of the U.S. homicides are committed against black males? 56%. So here's the, here's the, the silver lining. It's only 2% that we have to transform. And that's what we'll be working with, with Turtle, Charles, and Charlie Mack when we do our, in, in, in April, and saving our sons on how we change their lives. Because how this is, how this is done, the mentoring programs that we have here with the gentlemen here who are helping us with the intervention programs with Pulaski County Sheriff's, how we're trying to have wraparound service with the Department of Education. We can't suspend kids and send them back to the environment that caused them to act the way they're acting and then think they're gonna be okay. That's like, that's like going to the doctor and say, you got a stomach ache, and they look at you and say, well, go home. That's what happens when we go to school and they suspend a kid. You send it right back home without treatment. See, that didn't happen in the 50s and 60s. We got to analyze why. 
Number nine, the wounding of black males during incidents of gun violence is very common in the United States. On average, how many black males are wounded annually by gunfire? D, 24,000. All right, so that's the 84, 84 you bury, the other, 80, the other 24,000, which then 10, what's the average cost of that? It costs more to take a young man to the hospital that 583,000, so the annual cost of homicide to investigate is half a million. So we're losing. We're losing. So that's just for you to take that with. You can pick, take some extra. And I want to go now and let Mother, Mother Liz share her story. And we'll take a few questions. They'll be here. But we're just starting our church. I told Pastor Bronson, I want to be a refuge for these mothers, to bring them together, to support them. I was Officer Major Dyer, Officer Moore, been working with. We want to facilitate this within the Little, the Little Rock Police Department because when we find out that these people have fathers and brothers murdered and these little kids who go to school, they go there, they're acting out, they're dealing with trauma, dealing with so many things. And then it was like, just like Major Dyer called me and said, listen, our city serve, he said, I got six families I need you to get toys for. Now, this is what he told me. Stand up, Major Dyer. This is what he told me. He called me. He said, with city serve, he said, I got six families. I hear you got some toys. He said, if you don't get these family toys, I'm going to probably have to arrest these individuals. He said, can you help me? And you know what happens when you rob some things happen. So it's going to take this whole community effort to change this system of violence that we're having. And I, so we have, we're telling stories so you can see the impact of how a person who's not intended or whatever reason with guns, how the lives is taken. Mother Liz, you have the floor. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Elizabeth Jones, and I am the mother of Kentarius Peanut Scott. Growing up as a kid, oh, wow, um, Peanut was always happy. He came into the world as a happy baby. Um, he never cried. You know how kids come out and they cry? He never cried. We couldn't get him to cry for some reason. Um, very adventurous kid. Um, he loved insects. Um, he always kept a frog underneath his bed. Uh, he loved birds. Um, there wasn't a day that, that I went outside and um, there wasn't a bird's nest with a bird inside of it. I don't know how he caught a bird. To this day, I still don't know how my son caught a bird, but he managed to catch so many birds, um, you know, as a kid. Um, sweet kid, very mild-mannered, respectful. Uh, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Even in the text message exchange, it would always be yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, always. Um, we're, I'm a neighbor of Forest City, Arkansas, just as Miss Yolanda. We came here to the Little Rock area um, to where my son attended Philander Smith College. He began his major in criminal justice, just as myself, but he changed it within the last year to business. Um, growing up as a, as a kid, my sister can attest that we were in church seven days a week. Um, that was instilled in us. But I used to always hear my mother say, on your wellest day, you're sick enough to die. And I'm sure some of you have heard that, that statement before. So I didn't know what that meant. I never understood what that meant. I said, well, what is she talking about? On your wellest day, you're sick enough to die. So I guess on August the 29th at 11, 12 p.m., 2020, I learned what that meant. 
My son was well, but he died. I got the call. I was laying in bed. Um, this fiance ran into my bedroom and says, Mama Liz, Mama Liz, get up, get up. We got to go. We got to go. I said, well, what's wrong? Um, she said, just get up. We got to go. We got to go. Um, she never, she said, something's happened to Peanut. And I said, well, okay, well, what's going on? She said, I don't know. I just got this call. Something's happened to Peanut. So I got up, um, no wig. Uh, went out the house just as I was. Didn't care. So we got into the vehicle. I lived in North Little Rock, so we headed out to Twin Peaks. Um, phone ringing, her phone's ringing. It began to rain as we got there. Hot summer night, it began to rain. So she's driving to me slow, and I'm like, Virginia, please speed up, speed up. So we get there, yellow tape. So um, I saw a crowd, just a crowd of his friends. Um, Kent went out with his friends, um, his fraternity brothers. He was a Kappa. Um, Kent went out um, to watch the game, to which I was supposed to go with him, but I fell asleep that night. Um, but he ended up going out with his friends to uh, watch the game and just, you know, have some fun, normal night. Um, but when I got there, I was met by one of his friends, and nobody would tell me anything. So I could hear them whispering, she needs to know, she needs to know, somebody needs, this is mom, she needs to know. And I said, well, Nick, what's going on? Somebody tell me what's going on. And he's, you know, crying, all hysterical. I said, Nick, what's going on? Where's my baby? And he said, mama, he, he's over there. And I said, well, let's go, let me go see him. So the police stopped me and said, I, and I said, no, I got, that's my baby. I need to go see my baby. And, um. I said, Nick, tell, make the move. I need to go see my baby. And uh, he says, Mama, no, I'm sorry. He didn't make it. I said, what do you mean he didn't make it? What do you mean he didn't make it? He said, Mama, he didn't make it. He was shot. He didn't make it. I said, no. He's, he's, he's going to be okay if you let me go see him. As a kid, you know how you tell your, your child if they fall, they get a scratch, and you kiss it, and you blow on it, and some, for some reason it goes away. The pain goes away. So it took me to that moment to say, if I go over there and just, let me just touch him. Let me just, peanut, it's me, it's okay, let me kiss it. It's going to be okay. He's going to get up and come home with me, but it never happened. We stood there for hours and hours, and I never got a chance to see him. I remember them driving away with him, and I still didn't know anything. I knew absolutely nothing. And it's like no one would tell me anything about my son. So going into the next day, I'm thinking they took him in for surgery, and he's going to be okay. So I called his phone, and I called, and I called, and I called, and he never answered the phone. So then I started thinking, well, you know, maybe he's sedated. You know, he can't talk. You know, he's out of it. But still, I didn't have any details about my son. I remember a house full of people. But I still had no information about my son. So I remember... 
my son here, you know, coming to get in bed with me. And he said, Mama, I'm so sorry because I know that was your baby. And I'm so sorry. And I'm going, what's going on? And I learned that he was killed. He was shot and killed. He accidentally stepped on a young man's foot, apologized. One time, two times, three times, five times, and wiped it off. And he took that kind gesture as sarcasm from my son, and he shot and killed my son. So I'm left with, I don't know what to do next. So Miss Yolanda come to my home, and she helped me play in my son's service because I didn't know how to. The last thing I remember about my son, I was standing in the kitchen that day, and he was going, you know, to pick his fiance up from work. And I put his shoes outside, and he said, Mama, why did you put my shoes outside? I said, you know your feet stink. Are you, they, no, get them out of here. He said, you didn't have to do that, Mama. And he smiled at me and shook his head, and he walked out the door. And that was the last time I saw him. Fast forward, uh, I don't remember anything about my son's service. I heard it was beautiful. But I don't remember him. I don't remember anything. Um, and it bothered me for a while. But I, I don't want to remember him in that way. I want to remember that smile when he walked out the door. I don't want to remember him laying in a casket. Um, Get to the trial. We had trial April. It lasted about two weeks, a week and a half or two weeks. April of last year, May. So I came face to face with the boy who took my son. He wasn't apologetic. He blamed my son. And he had the nerve to say a high school injury kept him from wanting to fight my son. So he shot him. So he decided to use a gun to shoot him instead of fighting him. Just like Miss Yolanda, no justice was served. They gave him manslaughter for shooting my son twice. I learned some details. During that time, a lot of details I didn't know. But I did learn that he shot my son back of the head. And um, and it still doesn't seem real today. And my son was kind, he was sweet, and he was loving. And they left him there on the parking lot of Twin Peaks to die. But they gave him manslaughter, which was a total slap in the face, which should have been capital murder for shooting my son in the back of his head. I've learned that he's appealed it. <laughs> he's not happy with those charges, and he doesn't believe that he's, um, he should have been charged.
It's been very hard. Very hard. Not a minute, second goes by that I don't think of my son. Anyone that has came encountered with my son can attest that he was a bright, beautiful, loving, just kind soul. His favorite color was orange, which represents survivor hope and sunlight. And again, I learned what it meant when it said, my mom used to say, on your wellest days, you're sick enough to die. So on that day, August 29, 2020, my son died. And see, that's probably the fifth time I've heard both stories, and each time it moves my heart to realize to be an advocate because nobody's removed. And I want y'all to make sure you understand their children were not involved in gang activity. The perception is sometimes, well, they were, you heard God fearing, graduating from Philander, getting ready to go to music school. So to think that it won't happen to anybody is why we know that it can happen to anybody. And so our reach, our outreach here is to support. We had 119 homicides in Pulaski County last year. So probably 90% of those, which up still have mothers. So that's in addition to the club. Those have children that have trauma. And so if you've been in therapy like me, you realize this is therapy for them to tell their story because they want even the midst of the pain. And that's why it's called leadership and faith. So I'm gonna let each speak among how they each and every day continue to share their faith in their workplace in the pain that they have, which is just a role model image of Jesus. Miss Mama Yolanda, share how you, you, you know how they feel. How do you do that? How do you share your faith every day? I mean, it's how, how do you, where does your strength come from? God. I mean, if, if I didn't have God and uh, are surrounded by people who praying people, that believe in God and who love me and love God and, and, and have covered me, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I can tell you that right now. Because I had I was in my at my darkest. I was. And God brought me, only God brought me through this. Only God. And you have to have faith to make it through this. Because if not, you and you're not gonna make it. You can turn to drugs. I mean, I, I've literally met moms who, did, who didn't have that support, who did turn to drugs, who did turn to alcohol, who even tipped to suicide. Because you, you go there, you, you, you're in the darkness. So you need God, you gotta have God, you got prayer, plenty of prayer. Surround yourself with people that are praying people. 
keep keep yourself involved in the church. Keep positive attitude. Keep it's hard to do that, but keep positive people around you, and definitely counseling. I would not have made it either without therapy. And I've met so many who cannot afford counseling. You know, I was you know blessed to have two insurances that I was able to get the best counseling. And look at me now. I mean, even with that, listen, that didn't that doesn't stop my pain. I couldn't imagine someone who didn't who doesn't have counseling. And there are so many out there. Out of that 119, probably over half hadn't had never had counseling. I couldn't imagine that. And then they have smaller children. I don't have any smaller children, but those smaller children not getting counseling have to go to school. I couldn't imagine. I work in a hospital. I see death every day. And look at me. Don't tell me about what losing losing your child can do to you. It's the worst. There's nothing in life I think that I would go through this worse than this. So I'm letting you know that it takes a village. We have to stop. There's so many moms that's feeling like I'm feeling, but yet they never had the counseling I had, the experience with death that I've had. And I'm a mess, and I, God knows I know they're a mess. You know, so they need help. My heart goes out to any small child right now, any family who's grieving right now. I think about that every day. Like, they don't have any counseling. These children have to go to school, and then guess what? Teachers say, oh, he's being bad. He, he's a troubled kid. He may have just lost his sibling. And so he's acting out. He don't know what to do. He's traumatized. I was diagnosed with PTSD. Not because I was spent 10 years in the military, because I lost my son. That's why I was diagnosed with PTSD. Isn't that something? I made it through military, no PTSD, and I get it from losing my child. So that let me know, let you know how, how traumatic it is. My, I would never be the same. I would never be the same person. I changed that day. And from this day forward, what you have to do, uh, anybody who lo lose a loved one, you have to adjust to the new you. So I'm still trying to figure out who I am. Even through this journey, you know, you all seeing, I'm learning who I am. I'm trying to figure out who I am. So that's why I, I do what I do, give back, because I know this is what God would want. I know this is what my son would want. I have to help someone else who, who's, who's, who's walking in my shoes right now. Right now, there's a mom who just found out she just lost her child. So I, I want her to know that we are there, we've mm -hmm. been there, and we want to support everyone that has gone through this. And I, and I definitely have to, Mr. Earl, you all, the day, I, the week after I lost my son, I went to Healing Hearts. It's, it's, a, it's a group, you lose your children, you know, lose your loved one. I was so lost in so much pain, that man helped me. A father here, he lost three sons, you guys, here in Little Rock, three all three of his boys were killed here in Little Rock. That man helped me. He helped me get where I am today. Thank you, Mr. Earl. And lastly, as we go, Mother Liz, share your faith. And that's this is leadership and faith and how God gives you strength. And I know you struggled and considered Mm -hmm. suicide. Suicide, I mean, oh yes, yeah, yes. absolutely. Just to piggyback off of what Ms. Yolanda said, um, it's a struggle. It's still a struggle. I'm not okay. I'm not the same person. I don't expect to be the same person. Um, learning to adjust to the new person that I am. Um, I did not, I tried counseling, um, but he was more emotional than I was. So, um, and I just thought leaving out of there, that's not gonna help me. I tried every tool to try to hurry through this process. And I learned that there's not a, there is no time, no time frame on grief. 
there was nothing. I tried everything from NyQuil. Oh my God, I've I've so many NyQuil, just everything, and it still didn't help. And I skipped over the one thing that's always been there, and it's been God. It's been God. Revenge was never, it was a thought that crossed my mind, but my, my weapon of choice was prayer. Praying woman. But I found myself unable to pray during this time. I couldn't form a prayer. So I would find myself sitting up saying, Lord, just help me. Just help me through this moment. Through this, just let me get through it. I didn't want to live anymore. Mm-mm. That was it for me. I was done with life. I was angry, very angry with God. I questioned him. God, I did everything right. I served you. My son was a good kid. He was not in the street. He was a good, I taught him to obey the law. And he was, and I knew that I instilled it in him. His father is a military. Um, so he has the, the tags, the military, you know, disabled tags on his vehicle, which would allow him to park in a disabled parking space. So we would go to Walmart, and he would pass it by, and I'm like, handicapped? My mom not handicapped, and you ain't either. We walking. I said, well, let me out at the door, because um, I'm not parking way down here. But anyway, I instilled, so that's what let me know. My son obeyed the law, even when no one was looking. So I know. But my, my choice of, my weapon was prayer. It was prayer. That's the only thing. And I learned it didn't have to be a long prayer. God help me. Peace be still. Because I wrestled with, oh my God, you know, he got away. He got away. He killed my son. He, why my son, Lord? He was a good kid. You let him get away. And I put so much focus on this young man and wanting him to, you know, pay for taking my son's life until I lost focus of what it should have been on. If you just trust me, I got you. All you have to do is just trust me, continue to trust me. And he never left me. He said, I'm waiting for you. You've been running, I've been watching you run around, do these sleepless nights. Um, I never turned to alcohol or drugs, you know, thank God, but I did. Um, melatonin, I would go through a, a whole bottle of melatonin in two days. I would take about 10, 12 melatonins to help me sleep and I still didn't sleep. And if I did, maybe an hour or two here, and I would just jump up out of my sleep. And it was just, um, just heavily, you know, making pay, making pay, making pay, making pay. But I had to finally settle down and go right back to what was there all along. God, that's it. That's it. Revenge, no, that's okay. It's okay, and I had to tell myself, it's okay. It's, even if he never, if he never, if I never see, if I never receive an apology from him, it's okay. It's okay. So I know he lives within me. And it's, my son wanted me to be this way. After falling asleep, I had a dream about my son. And um, he appeared out of nowhere. We were in this small space. And when he walked up to me, I fell to my knees, and he held his hands out for me to put my hands in his hands. And he said, Mama, it's okay. He said, you know what you got to do. You got to forgive. You got to forgive. And in that moment, I said, but son, he said, no. 
I know what they did, but you gotta forgive. So with him, I feel coming to me in my dream, letting me know, you can't, he knows what I've been wrestling with. And my son was just that type, that person, sweet, willing to forgive. So with this one, I'm learning forgiveness. I'm learning what it truly means to forgive someone, even if they don't apologize to you. It's okay. It's okay. But prayer, I've learned it has it, not a long prayer. Lord, and I get up and I do this every day. Lord, be with me today. I feel much better. I'm in a much better place. I was in a very dark place. I didn't go out of my room. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't eat. I didn't shower. Anything. I didn't care how I looked. I, I, I almost lost my job of 15 years. I've been with the state 15 years. Federal employee with the United States Post Office. I just, I gave up on everything. Everything. But I had to realize I have another son. I have a daughter who needs me. I have family, friends who love me. And it's okay. It's okay. I had to lose my son in order to get closer to God. I had to. I had to. So for me, I'm still a work in progress. I am. But I'm not in that dark place to where I feel like suicide is the answer. I'm not anymore. And I owe it all to him. All to him. My trauma didn't make me stronger. I want you to understand. No, it didn't. It traumatized me. I made myself stronger by still having my faith in God. That's where it came from. The only place that it came from, not a, you know, counseling or a bottle. No, it came from God. Only from him. So I give him all the credit and I ask him to continue to help me. I still ask for help those days to where nothing seems to go right. I fall back and say, Lord, I need you again. Please help me. So that's been my weapon of choice. Prayer. Prayer. Let's give a round of applause for these strong mothers. So our goal as we continue, so you know we continue on, we yes, the next phase of this will be our mentoring programs that we have, brother, uh, all the, that we'll be working with, we'll be presenting them next time who wish to prevent this from happening. This is focused on the mother. So we're looking at strategically how we can stop this by getting involved in the lives. Because if you look at the, the first decade of the lives of these young men, who are committing murders in the second decade of their lives is because of their environment and their experiences that we as a church must get involved on the front end. So what we're gonna be doing with our outreach team, working with the Little Rock Police Department that I've been meeting with for the last couple of weeks and with the Pulaski County Sheriff Department is trying to work with these mothers. You see, these are the two best mother leaders that we have that can, that can go into the communities. We want, we have, a, we have a, a restaurant on wheels, two fish, five loaves, that we wanna go to the communities with the Little Rock Police Department. We wanna go with them. We want, you, you heard what they said, the therapy that they don't have, our community got to provide that. <laughs> Why would we not? Why would we not? Because we don't want to invest, when we don't invest on the front end, we invest on the back end. So we're going to pay for it one way or the other. So we ain't saving by not doing. And the government answer is build prisons. That's the answer. 
And that's why the prison population has quadrupled from 19, from 1980s from less than 300,000 to 2.5 million. If we don't turn the faucet off over here in 2050, it'll be 5 million. So, but we mothers, we want to provide that support group to let the mothers come here with them and to provide that support for them because we want every mother to get the support that they have because if they don't, the consequences are negative to move on, to partner with the healing hands for those to bring in, the food provide, to, you know, to, to, to give therapy to the kids that need it. So that's what we want to share with you today. This, 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 you'll be hearing about it. God, it's a grassroots effort. We're not, we, we, God will provide for everything. We're not going trying to get a million dollar grant. We're doing, this, this is our Red Sea for God to open. Moses wasn't an engineer, but he was faithful. And he walked up to the sea, looking crazy, and they said, what you doing up there? He said, I'm being obedient. I'm being obedient. And that's what we're going to do, and God has already given us the vision, and become with that will be the provision because of how God's going to do it. These are our leaders. We're here to support them and the other mothers who join the club on a weekly basis here in central Arkansas. So as we close, I'm going to ask Pastor Robert Upshaw, our, our uh, pastor here to uh, downtown, to come close us out in the word of prayer. Would you, Brother Robert? Anything you want to say? Let's pray. Dear Father, you hear the hearts. You watch. There's nothing that goes before you that you don't already know it's going to happen. Father, it wasn't until the Israelites finally cried out to you and you responded in a mighty way. Father, we, your people, cried out to you. And our hope is in you, Lord. It's not in our abilities to think and build up programs. It's to put our trust and hope in you. And Father, lives don't change until hearts change. And it's through your sweet spirit that hearts change. And Father, I pray as we go forward, we would put our trust in you and believe that you're able to overcome anything that we're going to face, anything that the evil one wants to throw at us, that we can trust you to get us through it. Father, I ask blessings over these two moms. Father, I can't even imagine what life would be like without our kids. Father, hold them up. Love on them. Wrap your arms around them. Continue to bring people in their lives to hold them up, Lord. Father, we need direction. We need wisdom. We need knowledge. We need your hand of grace to see a change in our communities. We love you. We give you praise. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for listening in. I hope that this message blessed you and it helps you in your journey with Jesus. If it did, leave a comment, leave a review. Things like that help us spread the message of Jesus. Uh, If you want to connect with us, the best way to do that is to follow us on Instagram at at NLC Downtown Little Rock to follow along with the life of our church.